Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle. And as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with actor and activist, Rucha Murjani. Stay tuned. Emerging from so much noise around us is the signal of just being ourselves. Now, how we place ourselves among the people around us and our experiences is a result of the building blocks we either carry or let go from childhood to adulthood in an ongoing negotiation with the world around us. And speaking of which, thank you for negotiating your way to listening to the show and sharing it with your friends and family, for subscribing, downloading, and rating the podcast on your favorite platforms, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. For many South Asian Americans, just being ourselves is, well, complex. There's the community feel of a shared experience, blended with the subtle and more nuanced contours of each individual's living chronicle of how they relate to the world around them and the discoveries they make within themselves. Now let's take one glowing example of this synchrony in actor Rucha Murjani. Rucha grew up in the Bay Area in a family of talented artists, trained as a dancer, and has been acting now for over 10 years, with television and film work on The Mindy Project, NCIS Los Angeles, and Hot Mess Holiday, among many other credits. But it's perhaps her role showcased as Kamla on the award-winning series Never Have I Ever, which airs on Netflix and was created by Mindy Kaling, that highlights many of the mirrors and windows examining the South Asian American experience. Rucha is now soon to be featured on the critically acclaimed FX series Fargo, which will begin a fifth season of production this fall. And significantly, Rucha's advocacy and activism for animal rights, mental health, and environmental justice are genuine and noteworthy, being recognized recently by the Biden administration for her contributions. I was able to catch up with her to chat about it all, but we of course started with a common challenge that faces many Californians, the art of living comfortably and at ease in LA after growing up in the Bay Area. Yeah, you know, it took a while to feel that way. I would say maybe seven or eight years it took to feel like LA is truly my home and where I see myself living forever. But it didn't feel that way at first. You know, I, I did feel like I was just coming to LA to work and, and explore things, but then I would go back home to visit my family and that was the real home. Yeah. But now I do feel like this is my true base. I don't think you can beat those evenings in the wintertime when it's still like 70 degrees outside and just chilling, which <laughs> I is I will great. say though that sometimes I think that people don't realize LA does get really cold, especially in the winter. Like sometimes at night it gets to in the 30s, just like yeah. the Bay Area. Let me ask you this. I, I imagine that you've sort of felt super comfortable in your own skin as a South Asian American. But, but I'm curious if there was any major kind of like stretching of your range or your depth. Well, I would say that it's an overstatement to say that I'm so comfortable <laughs> in my South Asian skin. I would say I'm a lot more comfortable today than I was, you know, when I was growing up. 
um, or even in the beginning of my career and having a show like Never Have I Ever, both being on it and also just as an audience having it has definitely helped me to personally feel more comfortable in my South Asian skin. And I know that many people also feel that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I did feel like the role came very naturally to me because, you know, one thing that I did that helped me before I even knew I was going to be on this show, something that really helped me to prepare was I had moved to Mumbai in yeah. uh, 2013 for a couple of years to pursue acting there. And, you know, I've always been very connected to my culture and I've gone to India many, many times growing up. Um, but moving there by myself, without my parents, without my family and living on my own was something that transformed me as a person and as an actor and really gave me an even deeper connection to my culture. And I do think that that was very necessary for, and I did, like I said, I didn't even know it back then, but I do think that it was really necessary to helping me prepare for the role of Kamala, who comes from India. And obviously, I, it's not the same as growing up there. But I do think that that helped a lot, even with the accent, because while I was there, I developed a little bit of an accent and then I came back and it kind of went away again. I wonder, I mean, even with that, were there particularly any surprises that you felt that like, you know, they were just out of your element. They were just, you know, hey, I, I am not prepared for something like this. And, and I do have a sort of element of having to sort of jump out of my comfort zone at all. Yeah, you know, I mean, just having to do the accent, because even though it does feel natural to me and I do it in my own personal life when I'm talking to family or, you know, when I'm in India, I, I do actually have an accent. Yeah. Uh, I kind of switch between the two, but having to do it for a character and having to do it on camera is a completely different thing. And there's a lot of pressure to get the accent perfect, even though there's no such thing as a perfect Indian accent, which we all know because yeah. everybody speaks differently. But at the same time, I understand, you know, that the I understand why people want to hear such an authentic accent and, and, and they feel sensitive when they feel some things not authentic because I feel the same way when I watch, whether it's yeah. watching myself or other actors. You know, that was something that I I really wanted to do as well as I possibly could. But it was it was challenging and it was scary, especially when the show came out. I, I was really scared of how it was going to be received. And, you know, I think I got a lot of wonderful feedback that people couldn't even believe that that was not my real accent, which I was very happy about. But then of course, there were a lot of people who tore it apart and thought that it was really bad. So, you know, you can't make everyone happy. No, totally. So with that, I mean, in your mind's eye, is there a way to measure your own success in this way? Or is it always going to be, you know, kind of based upon feedback? Is there a metric? I think it is never based on feedback. I think success is something that is not a tangible thing. I think it's it's not something that you can achieve. I think success is how you feel right now in this moment. If you feel like you're successful and you feel you are doing everything that you can to to work hard and to be a good person and to make other people feel good and to just be a kind person, I think that is success. For me, I feel successful when I feel like I am grounded and, you know, doing everything I can to to work hard and to have a fulfilling life. And, and that doesn't always mean booking a role or, or, or doing a job or, or winning an award. It's having a fulfilling life to me means, you know, working on, on being happy in different areas of my life, whether that's my relationships, my family, my friendships, my health, all of those things are so important. Do you think that that kind of great balance and integration of all those different things, has that made you more patient 
as a professional and an artist at all? Yeah, I would say so. You know, patience is something that for me is something I've had to work on my whole life because I'm not a very patient person and I always want things to happen really quickly and I always want to get things done with really quickly. But I've learned that that is not the most effective way to do things and it's not really healthy either. I think that patience is key to um, doing anything great and to feeling fulfilled, as I mentioned before. You know, learning to balance all these different areas of my life has taught me to be more patient yeah. and just being in this industry. I mean, you have to be patient to be in this industry because yeah. nothing happens right away as we I, know it. I was just going to say that like, you know, for you, has that been something now that you've had some success and, and are feeling that with the idea of being and learning that patience? Do, do you think that that's kind of the secret to longevity in this industry? I think so. I think learning to be un sorry, the opposite, learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable is something that Mm. I really had to learn. And I think that that is definitely a key to longevity in this career, because not even just in this career, honestly, in life, because life is always going to put us in situations where we're uncomfortable and we're uncertain of what's going to happen, whether that's our health or our relationships or our careers. And learning to be uncomfortable, sorry, I keep saying uncomfortable, learning to be comfortable with not knowing what's going to happen is so important. I think one of the things you just mentioned is is this idea of being comfortable with ambiguity. Yes. Has that been a learned experience? I mean, have you had to really sort of like, because it's very tough in in any career path, but I mean, in yours especially, right? Like that the ambiguity and the uncertainty of what's happening tomorrow and booking gigs and, and jobs, that can sort of be frustrating, I'm sure frustrating and also it can feel crippling at times when you feel like you know I, I for me there was a very uncertain period of my my life in my mid-20s where as I mentioned I moved to India and I wanted to pursue acting there and I was still I, I think struggling is a very relative term but I was a struggling actress and a struggling artist and I was single and I was not making any money and I didn't know if I wanted to stay in India or if I wanted to come back to LA and I didn't know you know, whether I chose LA or India, where I was going to get work and, and, and find a life partner. I didn't know any, there was so much uncertainty in my life that it felt suffocating and overwhelming and, and crippling. And, and I think that was a time when, when I really had to learn the lesson of feeling uncomfortable. I keep saying that, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Learning to feel comfortable, learning to feel comfortable with not knowing what's going to happen. And, doesn't mean that now I'm so comfortable with uncertainty. Right, right. I think yeah. it is something that I have to work at every day and, and I'm continuing to work towards and get better at. But, you know, obviously it's much easier said than done. Yeah. And it's a work in pro- My wife's an Ayurvedic doctor. And so like... Oh, wow. Yeah. And so the idea of like sort of like quick fixes to things, that's just not yeah. the way it works, right? And It's not. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you this. I mean, how much has that acting and portraying of Gamla and even like being a part of this production for you at least been driven by instinct? Hmm. You're saying how much of like doing the role of Gamla has been driven by instinct? Kind of just the idea of participating in an endeavor like this, which is purely a, a South Asian, very South Asian American experience. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm curious how much instinct is part of this Mm -hmm. as opposed by the way to like, Hey, I've had to perfect a craft. I practice at it. I, I practice the Kathak move and I can keep doing it. 
versus just right. the inherent instinct of, of being? I think it's both. You know, I, I couldn't just show up to work and be like, well, I don't need to prepare because I'm just going to go with my instincts and what I feel like is right. But I also do think that it's it's not good to over-prepare and it is important as an artist to be open and vulnerable and and to rely on your instincts when you're actually there. It's a combination of preparing and doing the work and, and working on my skills as an actor and then also just showing up and, and knowing that I am enough and I am ready for this and being open to the creative process. I've asked other people this too, and I'm always so curious, but as you mature and you age as an artist in this industry, is there a sharpening of that balance that happens of how much you can kind of go on instinct and how much you really, really are self-aware of the preparation that's needed? Yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, when I was brand new to this industry and, and learning how it all works and, and showing up to sets for the first time, I would prepare like crazy because I was, you know, obviously much newer and, and felt like I needed that extra preparation. But now I do feel with age and experience that, you know, I, I'm first of all, more comfortable in my craft and I feel much more, I guess, ready to do the work than I used to feel. So that's all a part of it. And I, and I'm sure that in five or 10 years from now, I'll feel even more prepared and and more ready for all of this. So, you know, it's definitely a constant journey and constant learning. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with actor and activist, Richa Morjani. Stay tuned. Sing, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with actor and activist, Richa Murjani. You grew up nurtured by very talented artists and performers and people who were, you know, doing this all in public. And, and I'm so curious, I've heard you describe yourself as an introvert. Yeah. What did you learn from your family or even some of these early influencers and artists and public performers about privacy and boundaries and protecting mm-hmm. that kind of personal space for being an introvert? Yeah. Well, my mom's definitely an introvert. Uh, my dad is, he's a lot more extroverted, but all of us are very, and I've learned this from my parents, we're very independent people. You know, we can be out and around people and we all love to talk. We all love to perform. We all love to um, socialize, but we also, all of us really, really value our space and our alone time because especially as an artist, I think that solitude is so necessary for creativity and inspiration. Mm -hmm. I think I feel the most grounded and the most inspired not only when I'm alone, I also feel inspired, obviously, when I'm out and about. But sure. I do think that um, my alone time is so crucial and essential to not just my creativity, but to my mental health. Mm. Um, it's the time when I get to recharge and to um, to feel grounded and to feel more clarity. So yeah. I do feel like an introvert in the sense that I I need that time to myself because when I'm out and about and talking to people and socializing, I feel really drained. 
And that is not conducive to being an artist. I, I wonder, you know, in that same sort of light, for those who are extroverted or introverted, but by design, they have really, really open and vulnerable and public, you know, presences. And it's tough. I, I imagine myself not being an introvert. I imagine that these are, are hard spaces to be in, but you probably just become more comfortable at it. But then you probably are incredibly protective of private spaces and observe yeah. that kind of silence. Yeah, I think that, you know, there has to be a balance because as much as I love to be at home and, and you know, working on my self-care and protecting my energy, I also love to be out with people and, you know, to be with family or to be with friends. So I think that it, for me, it's about having a little bit of a balance. Um, so if I, you know, attend a wedding or something that's like a three-day ordeal, I'll probably need a full week to be alone by myself <laughs> if I can. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like uh, the people who who take vacations and they like, you know, on the back end, make sure that they plan for a couple more days to sort of refresh. Exactly. So that's why sometimes people feel like they need a vacation from their vacation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and sometimes it's the people around them. I mean, are yeah. there are there ways for you that like, especially when you're acting and when you're actually on the job, that either on a daily basis or, or a uh, ongoing basis have become new to you? Like you've discovered that these are ways that you can feel refreshed and get centered again. Yeah. One way is, you know, sometimes during lunch, I know a lot of people like to have lunch together, but if I'm on set for 14 hours and I'm around people constantly, that lunch hour is so necessary for me to be by myself in my trailer to refresh yeah. and to feel recharged and to just give my, my mouth a break and my mind a break. <laughs> Do you let people know that like, look, this is like put a little sign on the door. This is a do not disturb time. No, if anything, I'll just, uh, I'll just say that I, I can't come out right now. I'm doing something. Yeah. But that's a good idea. I should put a sign from now on saying do not disturb. <laughs> <laughs> you, like I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but you grew up around so much culture and like, you know, pres preserving yeah. that. If I'm not mistaken, you're a professionally trained Gatak artist. Mm -hmm. Growing up with that much kind of immersion and real sort of like practice in that space. Do you feel like there's uh, a yearning in yourself to, to keep preserving that? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and if you do, I mean, all around us in kind of the zeitgeist of like living in America, it's, it's a constant battle, right? Because that, that preservation slips and evolves <laughs> and changes better or worse. <laughs> But, but how, how have you been able to sort of navigate that one? That's a really good question. Yes, I absolutely do feel that, um, I guess you could call it yearning or responsibility to preserve and to continue, especially when it comes to Kathak. I think, you know, these sacred art forms that have been passed down for generations and hundreds, if not thousands of years, there is a big part of me that wants to um, be a part of preserving it and and. And like I said, continuing it with, with future generations. But I also know that, you know, evolution is, uh, is evolution is just natural. It's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and it can be good in some ways and important in some ways to art and to life in general. But I don't know. I, I'm a little bit conflicted about that one because, yeah. you know, sometimes I see people mixing classical with like hip hop and Western things and, trying to make it all fusion-y. And it actually really um, 
makes me cringe because hmm. I, there's something that I think is so, um, like I said, sacred about Indian classical arts. And in a way I, I am kind of a believer that it should not be used with other things, but sometimes I'm also okay with it. So I don't know. It's something that I'm still thinking about. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. You know, my daughter did her Arangetram in for Bharatanatyam and, you know, I've seen some amazing fusion work of yes. hip hop and Bharatanatyam and, you know, you cannot ignore the talent, but absolutely the, the sort of the yearn and the purity of that is, is different. And, and it's tough. It's a conflict in, in that way. It's a conflict, but you know, like your daughter, like she did her Angetram, so she's learned the very pure classical form. And now she's taking that to, you know, do new things with it, which I, I actually really love and respect. And yeah. that's something that I would also probably do. But I guess what I mean is the learning needs to happen first in its most purest form. And what I'm hoping is that pure form doesn't suddenly turn into some weird fused form that gets taught from now on. That's what I'm trying to say. That's a great way to put that, right? Because it's like, you've learned the art, the way that it, the tradition has been passed on, how you now interpret that is really up to you and to grow yeah. it and to make it evolve in, in that way. I, I want to go back to this, the earlier part of your life where you had actually gone to Mumbai to try and jumpstart a career there. Yeah. You know, th those original kind of designs on having an acting career in Mumbai, which I imagine came from some framework in, in your mind, you know, growing up, I'm always so fascinated by what people are thinking the day before they do something. And so I yeah. want to ask you, you know, do you remember what was kind of going through your head on the plane ride there or right before you landed and kind of what was, what were your thought processes? Fear, just plain fear. How come? Um, because I didn't know anybody there. I had never gone to India without my parents before. I knew nothing about the industry. I didn't know anybody in the industry. I literally went there like a fish out of water, but I knew that I had to go because it was a, it was, um, you know, a lifelong calling, a lifelong dream. And I knew that if I didn't do it, I would regret it forever if I didn't at least try and, and go there. So it was a calling. Um, but that did not come without obviously a lot of fear because yeah. once again, so much uncertainty. But yet you had the great courage to take that leap. There was an element of confidence that sort of made you jumpstart that and get on that plane. Yeah. And I think that came from just having such a strong calling to do it. Yeah. And, and some, somewhere inside of me, just knowing and believing that whether it's in Bollywood or Hollywood, that I am going to do this and I am going to make it happen for myself. And so I think that that faith that I've always had in myself and in my dreams is what gave me the courage to overcome that fear. I mean, I'll ask the sort of, you know, the, the bookend question to that, which is, do you remember what you were thinking and how you were feeling maybe on the plane ride back? It was a very bittersweet plane ride back. I remember I was, I, I, I uh, spent the first half of the flight journaling and, and reflecting a lot on the last two years of my life, which was about how long I was there. Yeah. Um, because it was a really tough decision for me to come back to LA because I did feel like I'd only been there for about a year and a half or two years. And, it, and, and, you know, just like being here in LA, that's not enough time to start a career anywhere, whether that's an acting career or anything, you know, you need more time than that. And especially yeah. when you're in a brand new country that you've never been in before. But I also felt after a couple of years that I was, 
obviously really missing my family and also felt like, well, maybe I'm missing out on opportunities in LA. And I, it, like I said, it was just that uncertainty of not knowing where I belonged. Yeah. Um, but ultimately I just felt it was more practical for me to come back to LA where my family is. And I just felt like it was more realistic for me to, to act in LA after sure. my experiences that I had in, in India. I, I did want to spend a little bit more time there, but I also knew I should probably go back. And at the same time, I just had the most incredible life-changing experiences there that really, really shaped me into who I am today. And, and as I said, prepared me, not even knowing back then, but prepared me for the role of Kamala. So yeah, it was just a lot of reflecting and gratitude and also anxiety, all of it. Honestly, every emotion is what I was feeling on the way back. Turbulence in some ways, yeah. I'm sure, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, is there still a calling for you to have that kind of piece of your career integrate somehow Bollywood and, and that scope of, of the industry into your portfolio? Yes. I mean, I think it would definitely be, you know, a dream come true to do something in Bollywood, but it would have to also, it would have to be something that I feel is a good story and something yeah. that does feel um, artistically inspiring to me. I wouldn't just do anything. Right. But yes, of course, it would be amazing and it'd be fun. But I would definitely not pack my bags and move to, to India and suddenly <laughs> try to be in Bollywood right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and are there, it, that's sort of your South Asian American story, right? And I imagine that there are artists out there who were like, you know, I want nothing to do with Bollywood whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. You and know. I know a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. Because there's sort of like a different story arc for every single you know person that's out there. But for the person who's not necessarily familiar with South Asian American experiences or Indian American experiences, the natural assumption would be that like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you want to do that? Oh, yeah. And and I get that. But, um, you know, it, India and Bollywood is a very different beast from Hollywood. And, you know, there is a lot of nepotism and there yeah. is the casting couch is real and, yeah. you know, it's real in Hollywood, too. But I would say, especially after the Me Too movement, at least now there's a little bit more accountability and um, repercussions, whereas the Me Too movement didn't even take off in India, where yeah. it really needs to take off. And, you know, it's just living in India is, is very different from living here and having the conveniences right. that we have here and, and you know, some of the freedoms. So um, I don't think I would probably ever encourage my kids to do it. even. Though <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So it's really amazing that my parents, my parents uh, not only let me, but encouraged me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's, I mean, as parents, we, we have that conversation all, all the time. It's like, okay, well, does 25 year old me approve of that? Or does 50 year old me approve of that? <laughs> um, let me ask you this. I mean, based on that same kind of premise, what, what do you think at least now in 2022 and going forward with, you know, kind of like this groundswell of South Asian American activity in arts and media and culture in, in the States, what has to happen for South Asian Americans, um, particularly women and, and in general, women of color to hold more levers of power in the industry and start actually, you know, not just being at the table, but holding the decisions and being accountable for those decisions and, and making the stories more nuanced and, you know, sharing the, the untold stories for that matter. Um, what are some of those kind of steps that need to happen to get there? 
Well, you said women specifically, and I do think actually that, you know, women are very important to making all of this happen. And, you know, the women who do have the power, who have any kind of um, impact or uh, visibility, it is so important for them to pass that torch and to be a lighthouse and, and, and create spaces for other women or younger girls to be at the same table. Because, you know, unfortunately, there still is a lot of unnecessary competition and um, this notion that there's only space for one of us or two of us. And that's a very toxic uh, way of thinking about it. And it's unfortunate that I feel like there's a lot of actually performative talk about, um, you know, sharing the space and creating space for other women. And I think that when we start to move away from being performative and actually walking the, walking the, walking the walk, walking the talk, talking the talk, a little bit of both, right? Walking and talking and walking and talking. Exactly. I don't know why I forgot the phrase, but when we actually do that, that is when real change is going to happen. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable being that lighthouse, by the way? I do. You know, it's it's always, even before Never Have I Ever, it was always my mission to to uplift my community and to highlight my community. And, and you know, I, a lot of people, for example, a lot of actors I know, they don't want to play South Asian characters. They don't want to... Yeah doing acts. I mean, doing an accent is a different thing, but you know, they don't want to play South Asian characters. They want to do everything. Whereas I only want to play South Asian characters because we exist in real life and we exist in every single space and industry. And until, and unless that is reflected on camera uh, in media, you know, it, it makes it that much more difficult for us in real life to feel seen and to feel like we matter. So for me, I always want to tell stories that highlight South Asian people and not just highlight, but also, you know, I think that film and TV is such a powerful way to reflect who we are, but it's also a really, really powerful medium to reflect who we can be. Yeah. Aspirational in that way. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with actor and activist Richa Morjani. Stay tuned. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Darnikar, and I share stories about people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen online at ruckusavenueradio.com and on the Dash Radio app, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Abhay Darnikar, and welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with actor and activist Richa Murjani. So interestingly, right, you're you're about to start production on Fargo, which I imagine, you know, will present somewhat of a departure. Yes. You know, from what you just spoke about, and especially from Never Have I Ever, what kind of elements of your own interests and dimensions in acting and in your career are you kind of excited to explore? now going forward, not just with Fargo, but with, with other things that come down the road. You know, it's really interesting with Fargo. My character actually was specifically written as an Indian female cop. And mm. I didn't know why when I first read it, I didn't know why when I auditioned for it, but when I got the role, I asked 
Noah Hawley, who's the creator and the director, uh, sorry, the creator and the writer. Um, why did you write her as an, is there a reason? Is, is it part of the story? And he said, there's no reason. I just wanted her to be Indian. You know, I grew up in an area where Indian people were in every industry and in every space. And I felt like I wanted to reflect that in my stories. So I thought that was really amazing that, you know, it's not, it doesn't define who she is and it's not part of her arc. It's not about her, you know, um, navigating her, her cultural identity. She's just a cop and she's Indian and we don't talk about it, which I think is so cool. That's super cool. Yeah. I forgot the other part of your question. Well, I mean, at some point for you, are there textures and contours and dimensions of your career that, that you hope will go actually beyond portraying an Indian American or a South Asian American. And for that matter, do you ever worry about typecasting? I did. You know, I was really afraid after Never Have I Ever, especially after playing a character with an accent, that I would get typecast as just this, you know, good looking Indian girl with an accent who's funny. I thought that that was all I was ever going to be offered after this show. And that was a big fear and anxiety that I had. And that's why when Fargo came along and it's, you know, she is Indian, but she has a Minnesota accent, <laughs> is very American, <laughs> and she's a cop. It's literally, aside, besides being Indian, she's the complete opposite of Kamala. Yeah. And that was so exciting for me because I felt like I, you know, finally was going to do something that was so different from that, but also, you know, to show people in the industry that I can do other things. You know, I, I don't yeah. always have to play that character. And so, you know, for me as an artist, getting to do things that challenge me and are different and also, you know, challenge stereotypes and broaden understandings of what it means to be Indian or South Asian in this country, that is so exciting to me. Well, I mean, it sort of definitely applauds the whole idea of like how much diversity there is just in our own community, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, like, you know, the Indian American who's in Duluth versus, you know, the Indian American who's in... Los Angeles or, or, you know, California, very, very much, you know, such a different experience. I want to touch on one thing for sure. And that is, you know, your own passion and advocacy for, for variety of issues, definitely environmental justice and animal rights, you know, something that's been so appreciated and well received by, by so many. So far for you has kind of celebrity and success. Does that embolden kind of a spirit of being a, a fighter, if you will? Or, or is that something that's kind of always been there for you from the start? I will say that, you know, once I had some sort of platform or um, I guess I felt like I had more of a voice, it did yeah. embolden and give me more motivation to uh, start speaking out about these things and to become even more passionate about it because it's easy to feel and and I, I wish I never felt that way, but I did used to feel like, you know, even if I say something, it doesn't matter, like who's going to listen. Right. And I've now realized how not true that is. Yeah. You know, whether you have a platform or you don't have a platform, I'm a strong believer that every single voice matters. Every individual action matters because we are all connected and, and every action that you take has a ripple effect. And, you know, if you do something good or you, um, you know, you stop eating meat or you, you know, do something nice for the planet you inspire the people around you to do the same thing who maybe didn't know that, um, you know, something that you did could help. So I do think that obviously now that I have more of a platform and I have more influence, I guess you could say 
that I have noticed that my actions have influenced other people, which is amazing and really um, exciting to me to feel like I can make a difference in just by taking individual actions. But I also do believe that you don't have to have a platform to do that. I think anybody can do that. How do you, how do you cultivate more of that in the people that you influence, right? That like I could have one follower and still be an activist and still stand up for what I believe. Because I have personally witnessed people who I've come across just through my own research and perusing and and finding like-minded people who care about animals and the planet. I've seen people who maybe had like a hundred followers or, or, or maybe a little bit more, but I've just seen how through action and through using their voice and advocating and, and doing everything that they can to, to advocate for what they believe in, people will eventually listen. And I've seen people who, like I said, had very few following I've, I've been still following them and watching and, and seeing how their followers have, have grown. And it's not about getting more followers, but right. obviously the more followers you have, the more people are listening to what you have to say. So like we said, there's no measure for success, right? Exactly. So yeah. I still believe that everything that you do has a ripple effect because we are all connected. I mean, in the end, right, you have to believe in, in what you're doing and, yes. and hopefully be able to make sure that it's the right thing with the story that you're sort of writing for yourself. As someone who's enjoyed success, who is hopefully cultivating more success, however way you measure that, there are some who probably do this, you know, flawlessly or like very, very easily that they synchronize their activism with their celebrity. And then there's others who end up picking a lane. You know, do you feel like that's uh, a a difficult thing to navigate? Do you anticipate that there are, are forks in the road in that way? Maybe there are, you know, but I'm also the kind of person who I don't advocate for things that I don't feel strongly passionate or connected to. And it's not that I don't care about other issues, but I try to be very specific about the things that I do use my voice for or, yeah. or try to raise awareness about because they're things that I feel like I'm personally very passionate about and I know enough about to talk about it. Because I also think that when you have any kind of platform or, or visibility, you do have to be careful about what you're putting out there because sure. just because you read something or hear something and, and you feel like, oh, I should share this. You may not know enough about that topic or about that situation to be, you can actually be hurting the situation more than helping it by yeah. sharing things that you don't know enough about. So for me, I try to be very specific about what I raise awareness about and what I share. I feel like you probably have to be very cognizant at all times about not only what you're promoting and and the research yeah. and the effort and the intent that it takes to make sure that it's it's reasonable and and very much viable but it, and also at the same time you're you're you also have to be sensitive to your own brand and what you stand for yeah and and the other thing i was going to add is that i don't really care if i post something about animals um, that upsets people who like to eat meat. I don't care if people unfollow me for that reason. Yeah. For me, I share things and I talk about things that I think need to be heard and need to be out there. And, you know, for the most part, it is very well received and people appreciate it and they learn from it because I'm also learning at the same time and I like to share the things I'm learning. But if people want to unfollow me for that reason or not, you know, look at my page anymore, I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that, 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 that's an interesting thing, right? Like, in the end, having that kind of confidence and trust in yourself, is that harder to do when, you know, if this was several years ago for you before much of your success was sort of burgeoning, um, that must take a little bit more of a leap than 
you know, than now. I, I would actually say it's harder now because now I feel like everything that I say and I do, there are people out there who are just waiting to tear, not just me, but anybody who has any kind of visibility or platform, they're just waiting for a reason to tear you apart and to criticize yeah. you. And, and you know, you're, it's, it's a very vulnerable thing when you know that there are hundreds or thousands of people looking at you and looking at your profile and reading every single thing that you write and, and right. post about. And, and there are a lot of mean people out there and yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of bullies out there who are just waiting for a reason to, to, um, to tear you down. So yeah. I would actually say it's much harder now, but at the same time, as I mentioned, you know, when I feel really strongly or passionately about something that kind of overtakes any fear of, um, being bullied or trolled, which is going to happen no matter what. Yeah. When you meet someone for the first time, um, or when they're perhaps experiencing your work for the first time, what do you hope they're saying or thinking or feeling? What are some of the impressions you, you want to leave on people as, as they kind of soak it in, if you will? That's a good question. Hopefully they don't feel bad. <laughs> I guess the most I can hope for is that they don't feel like I was a mean person or that I made them feel bad in any way. Right. I think that, you know, the hope is that we both feel good from the conversation. You know, I feel like, you know, it was, it was mutual respect in the conversation. And yeah, I, I, that's all I can hope for is that nobody felt yeah. bad and, and we both felt good from the conversation. That's it. Do you feel after... I mean, in the spirit of what we're doing right now, which is just sharing a conversation, what are some of the questions that you often ask yourself about, mm -hmm. you know, your career or about being South Asian American? Mm -hmm. Are there, you know, ongoing questions that you're sort of constantly asking yourself for good, for good reason, by the way? Yeah. You know, I think it's important to keep questioning everything. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to my work or anything that I'm currently working on, I'm constantly asking myself, am I being a authentic to myself and be authentic to this character and this project? But also, um, I guess a better way to say it is, am I being authentic to myself? And am I also doing something that I feel like is authentic to my people and my community? If I'm playing a South Asian character. Yeah. So that's one question. And another question is just, how else can we keep challenging stereotypes? How else can we keep, um, you know, breaking barriers and, and creating stories and characters that are, yes, going to make people feel seen, but also, you know, doing something different, doing something new that's going to maybe people who are not South Asian see us differently in a more positive and a more um, see us in, in, in a much more dimensional way than they currently see us because of previous representation. Well, Richa, thank you, first off, for sharing so many of your dimensions. We're so grateful for all the success that you're having and can't wait to experience more of it. Loved having you join the show and, and I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thank you. It was such a wonderful conversation. And like I said, I do not feel drained, even though I'm an introvert. <laughs> Thanks again, Richa. Newsflash for those who are coming back from an incredibly long nap or a Netflix naive, season three of Never Have I Ever is out now. 
Now let's all think about our daily carbon footprint and the non-human lives that are affected by our actions. So please consider the following organizations that are creating and sustaining positive change in Mercy for Animals, Greenpeace, Earth Justice, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and the Sunrise Movement. You'll thank yourself now and later. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dharnagar. Because every story told is a lesson learned, because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dharnagar, and I share stories about people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen online at ruckusavenueradio.com and on the Dash Radio app or wherever you get your podcast.